You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Konnichiwa, motherfuckers. What's good? Welcome, one and all, to Abacabo Cafe, the internet's own English language, Kimagure Road podcast. My name is Jason Almi. I host this wonderful program, and I'm very excited about today's episode because we're going to be talking about Kimagure Orange Road TV episode 35, entitled Perverted with a Camera, Robo Kyosuke. Typically, you'll see the title of this episode translated as perverted with a camera. Like, I guess he's using the camera in a perverted manner. He's behaving in a perverted manner with the camera. But I don't know, maybe a better translation might be pervert with a camera. Robo Kyosuke is like the the pervert. He's armed with a camera. He's going to take pictures of all of your lady bits in an inappropriate way. But that's what we've got to look forward to today. This episode originally aired on November the 30th of 1987. It was directed by Morikawa Shigeru, who has directed several episodes at this point. He directed the very important episode 7 of the TV series, the Spark Colored Kiss episode. And his episodes have gotten progressively sillier since then. He directed Don't Ring the Wedding Bell which was still kind of mostly serious, kind of half and half, kind of 50-50. It was a little goofy, too. We had the visual humor of Kasuga dressing up like uh, Wolf of Wall Street and slicking his hair back in a desperate bid, in in an obviously desperate bid to impress Ayukawa. And then he came back to direct the episode where Ayukawa sees a UFO. That one's grounded in a little bit of reality because it's really more about Akasaka having Ayuko's back as as a future romantic partner and really supporting her. And it's more about how you support your your loved one than UFOs actually flying around. But that is part of the episode. He directed Hawaiian Suspense, uh, which was kind of a far out episode two because it was really the only episode of the show that that has like a real serious, dire 
consequences physically for these characters. Like they're going to get shot in the head and dumped in the ocean. And that's pretty heavy for a slice of life comedy about kids with ESP that are uh, trying not to do it with each other. He directed episode 23. That's the episode where Kasuga fantasizes about slapping Ayukawa around a little bit while talking in this really brusque kind of Yakuza accent. And then, and then he really, he tops off his of war with episode 29, which is the let's get Jingoro laid episode, kind of a crazy episode. So his episode started with a very serious, very important episode seven, and they've just gotten a little bit crazier as he's gone on. They've just let this guy loose, I guess. Today's episode was written by Terada Kenji, who has written 16 episodes to date, including this one. And he also uh, most recently wrote last week's episode which was the Roots Panic episode that introduced Oji-san and Oba-san to our repertoire of characters. Like most episodes, this episode begins in media res with an already hypnotized Kasuga. He's a full-fledged panty thief, even as the episode opens. Despite being a very common opening for an Orange Road episode to begin in media res, this intro is still a little bit unique. Uh, there are some still images of women's underwear hanging out on a clothesline to dry. They're pastel colors, what you'd expect, pink, yellow, light blue, light green, and they're all pretty cute like you'd expect. It doesn't seem like the type of thing that one would put out on a clothesline for the world to see, at least speaking for myself, I'm not hanging out my crotchless thongs for my neighbors to judge me. It's not happening in this household. So the series of still images continues. We see a few here. Uh, the art style is light. There's a soft focus to it. Everything's kind of bright. Again, the pastels are prominent. And then we get two still images of the panty thief. And he's in a dark blue silhouette. You don't see much details of the panty thief. Who are they? The second still of the panty thief involves a rapid pan horizontally across the art to simulate movement without actually animating it. And we then immediately cut to a shot of various pastel colored women's underwear kind of floating through the air as if they've been tossed into the air and are still kind of hanging there for a moment. During this shot, each one of these garments transforms into a flower. So the flower acts as this symbol of, of innocence or chastity that the panty thief is deflowering these young girls in a way, maybe not in the literal sense that we typically tend to think of deflowering as, as intercourse, but in this sense, kind of stealing the, the innocence or chastity of these girls, this uh, intimate garment of theirs. Again, it's not meant for the world to see, but it represents the innocence and the modesty and the intimacy of these girls. And the series of still images continues with very little animation here. The panty thief is rendered in the silhouette. Again, there's not much detail given, and these rapid cuts are meant to obscure this person's identity from the audience for now. We're not supposed to know who this person is during this opening scene. But then we immediately cut to Kasuga foisting a giant mound of panties in his arms. He's standing in an alleyway. He's handing these panties over apparently to Komatsu and Hata, and, and this is no shock to any viewer, I'm sure. At this point, we're all just wondering, 
how the hell did this transpire? Komatsu and Hata, of course, they're beyond thrilled. They're wondering why Kasuga is doing every single thing that they ask of him. Add that to the animators drawing Kasuga's body language with his blank, empty gaze, and we can tell that he's hypnotized again. There's something off about his face. His eyes are heavily lidded. He seems vacant. I imagine the Orange Road writer's room just has this large wheel right next to their big pile of cocaine, but they have this large wheel that they would spin to get the conflict of the week for for that episode. And like six of the eight slots were just hypnosis written on them. Next, Komatsu and Hata target these companion girls. Not what I think when I think of companions. These are really more like promo girls. They're they're doing a promotion at a, a trade show, apparently. They're standing next to these cars. When I think companion, I think more like a paid companion. I mean, somebody's getting uh, rubbed and tugged at the end of that particular date because they're paying for this female companion. But, but in Japan, apparently, a companion girl is... Uh, a girl who accompanies a product or, or, or something like that to help promote it. It's what we would see over here in girls promoting things, cars. Sure. We will use cute young women to promote those over here, but promoting alcoholic beverages. Oftentimes you'll see girls who are promoting alcoholic beverages, particularly when they're like a new release, trying to get people to drink these things. But, but it's that type of girl and, and Komatsu and Hata target these women to get their panties. Like, wouldn't that be like the best panties in our whole pile if we could get them from these promo girls? And apparently Kasuga uses the power to snatch them because they're already wearing them at the time. He's not taking them from a clothesline. He's getting panties off of a girl that's wearing them at that moment. That's a next level skill. And we do in fact hear the audio cue. that the power is being used as Kasuga lurches towards these girls. Panty stealing and, and thievery in general has to be really easy when you can teleport things. And I love how the first girl asks the other two, are you cold down there? Like she doesn't ask the other two girls, is it cold in here to you guys? Instead, she's like specifically asking them if their vaginas are cold. As Komatsu and Hata are shitting their pants over what Kasuga has given them, we get a slow zoom out to reveal the promotional girls looking super embarrassed, mortified. They're holding their short skirts down. And I guess this is supposed to be humorous. Maybe. I don't know. But it really just makes me feel bad for these girls. Like they're completely mortified because all three of them have just realized that apparently they forgot to put panties on. I don't know. They don't seem to suspect that their panties were stolen via ESP. They're just all three realizing that they don't have anything covering their vaginas and they're wearing some pretty short skirts. So there's a solid chance that somebody is going to get a peek at their buttholes that day. And of course, it's terrible for them. It's not what they intended at all. So to make it worse, we cut to a tight shot of Komatsu and his face is pressed up against the glass looking at the... At, at the promo girls, and he's nothing short of rapturous. I mean, his grin is ear to ear. He clearly does not feel one single nanoparticle of shame or guilt or remorse, even while witnessing the suffering that he's caused. So if that's meant as humor, it lands flat for me because I just feel bad for these girls. It's a terrible thing to happen, and 
really it doesn't work as very much of a punchline to me to see these poor girls like holding their skirts down. But I think that's probably what that zoom out was meant for. It was meant to reveal these girls looking mortified, completely embarrassed as kind of like a ha ha, right? So really this episode can act as a cautionary tale of one-upsmanship. Of course, after just a few minutes, stealing panties grows dull. What are you going to do with more panties when you already have like 50 of them? So next they want to see if Kasuga can obtain some nude photos for them. Interestingly, they choose Ayukua as their target rather than somebody else like Shikaru. Presumably they don't consider the twins because Kasuga is their brother and, and that's kind of gross. But Ayukua was at one point in time untouchable to Komatsu and Hata. If we think back to the first few episodes of Orange Road. So for them to admit at this time that they have wanted to see her naked body, it seems like they've either moved past her being a delinquent or possibly she has at least in part shed her delinquent status. I think it might be more of the latter, that she's a little bit less of a delinquent now than she was in episode one. She's still very intimidating. She can still roundhouse kick these guys in the head with zero effort, but she's a more desirable to them because she's not smoking and riding a motorcycle to school anymore. And I think also Ayukua has to be the target for these two because the writers understand that Shikaru is too easy of a target. If they send Kasuga after Shikaru's nudes, it's not a problem. Shikaru's probably going to consent, especially given what we witness later in this episode. Now, during this, we see a, a series of still images of Ayukua in a state of near undress as Komatsu and Hata are kind of drooling over the prospect of her nude photos. The background is abstracted. It's these light pastels again, something very girly, stereotypically. And there are flowers positioned strategically throughout the frame, but they match the background. So clearly we're seeing some kind of mental image that maybe Komatsu and Hata have. It's not as dirty as what I would have expected from those two. So I suspect that maybe there's some editorialization from the filmmakers too. They they want to present this image of Ayukawa's sexuality that they wish to promote. That's It's for the viewers. Now, Komatsu refers to Ayukawa as 15 here in this moment. I think probably he's mistaken about her age or it's a mistake of the, the writing team. Possibly they wrote this episode even before deciding upon her birthday. They didn't know where this episode was going to fall when they wrote it. So she's either still 15 in this episode or it's some kind of anachronism or Komatsu is mistaken about Ayuko's age. They didn't make a big deal out of Ayuko's birthday in the anime, which makes sense. Ayuko is a more private person. She's not broadcasting that it's her birthday. That was back in May. Now we're at the end of November. So she's been 16 for a while. So I suspect it was probably an anachronism of the writing, but it could also be uh, evidence that Komatsu just doesn't really have any idea of what her age is, which makes sense too, because his head is so far up his own ass. Kasuka letting the kids play with him is pretty cute, even if it was under hypnosis. 
I always appreciate an adult that can get along well with kids and play well with kids. Me being a father myself, I mean, I like that type of thing, and I respect that type of thing in other adults. This flashback is sepia-tinted. Not all of them are. Not every Orange Road flashback, particularly if we're looking back uh, a few minutes or hours earlier. A lot of times they, they won't use that sepia tint unless it's something that's really far back. Now, the scene between the twins and Kazia does help explain Kasuga's hypnosis. Kurumi, of course, is the culprit. She seems almost surprised how easy it was for her to hypnotize him, as if she didn't entirely expect it to work. That tells us that she wasn't hypnotizing him for any particular purpose. She was really just trying it out, and she didn't give a shit about the consequences. Again, Kurumi is acting as this agent of chaos. She's not specifically trying to be a villain. So again, it's kind of an amoral agent, but she's introducing this plot point because she doesn't really give a shit and she doesn't mind watching the world burn. Manami's line about weirdos taking advantage of Kasuga was a fairly obvious dig at Komatsu and Hata, and the filmmakers make it explicit by cutting away to them sneezing. That, of course, indicates that they have some knowledge that they were being spoken of. The sneeze felt like it was coming from their soul. It makes for a fairly inventive transition back to them, however. They're still looking for Kasuga, who's disappeared. Ayukawa, for her part, immediately notices Kasuga's cognitive vacancy. She's put off by his silence, and she fills that dead air with some chatter. It's kind of uncharacteristic of her also. She's usually very businesslike, but she's kind of filling this dead air in her conversation with Kasuga that he's really not participating in because he's not really there. The lights aren't on. The camera lingers with Ayukua even after Kasuga has left. It shows us that she's noticed something funky about him. Even early on, something's not right. It's not sitting well. And she might even be noticing that he disappeared too quickly due to him teleporting away to Shikaru's. Ayukua noticing that there's something kind of off about Kasuga that day sets us up for the climax of the episode later on, too. We join Shikaru as she is in the process of verbally and emotionally abusing Yusaku. It comes as no surprise, but she's got that mean streak. She's accusing him of being less than a man because he's not moving the heavy things more quickly. She's giving him all of the heavy shit to move, and he's doing it too slowly for her uh, liking. And she's saying, hey, I thought you were a man. When Kasuga arrives, she, of course, gives him this small desk lamp to carry while giving Yusaku this absurdly, comically large stack of things creates this visual gag for us as she piles these things up higher than she possibly could, but it's kind of like Looney Tunes. I mean, she's just throwing things onto this stack, and it somehow works. In this episode, Shikata's room is not plastered with posters of Kasuga as in the I was a cat, I was a fish OVA, which if we take this to be chronologically after that OVA, then perhaps she took them down, or did the OVA episode happen two years later, as is depicted there? That doesn't really jive with the the anime series either, 
but it does help to imply this this history that's occurred between the characters for her to have all of these photos of Kasuga up in her room at that time. Possibly did the authors make a decision about the presentation of Shikata's room for that OVA without any consideration of previous depictions such as here, since that episode was produced later? That's the most likely thing in my opinion. They produced that OVA episode later on without really thinking about how it would fit into the overall anime chronology and without really considering the previous depiction of Shikata's room that occurs here in this episode. And we also see quite a few flashes of Shikaru being rather mean to Yusaku because he's kind of getting in the way of her romance with Kasuga. Cock-blocking is really what he's doing. Now, Komatsu and Hata, they do get busted by the police, no less, with a heap of stolen panties when they, when they go to report Kasuga missing at the station. And their punishment is presumably very light because we see them at Abakabu just a short while later, and they seem undeterred. Probably the cop treated it like some boys will be boys shit instead of creepy would-be rapists will be creepy would-be rapists because it seems like a little bit more of a serious thing to me that his teenage boys got a pile of stolen panties. I mean, I don't know. That doesn't seem like a slap on the wrist shit to me, but it, it seems like they get a slap on the wrist and they go about their business. Back in Shikata's room, Kasuka finds a pair of her panties, and apparently he's still operating under Komatsu and Hata's orders because he pockets the, the panties. And it's at this point that I think, in general, I've seen too much of 15-year-old girl underwear in this episode. Shikata's reaction to finding out Kasuga is a pervert panty thief is kind of funny. It's a little bit of a subversion of expectation. Typically expect that when the female character catches the male character, stealing her panties, that she's going to react indignantly. She's going to get pissed. Like, why are you stealing my panties? You weirdo, you pervert, etc. But to her credit, she has this tremendous knack for putting a positive spin on things. Instead of viewing Kasuga as a pervert or a deviant, she interprets his action as a symbol of his desire for her. She's actually flattered that he would steal her panties. Also, I laughed at Kurumi not wanting Shikaru to lose her virginity before she herself does. It seemed kind of like a weird motivation. With the exception of a few episodes back, Kurumi really hasn't shown a whole lot of interest in dating. She really seems more concerned with f***ing with people. We see another editorialized shot of Shikaru as she is imagined by the twins. They imagine her seducing a hypnotized Kasuga, who's, of course, going to take whatever command she gives him. That is a shot of her in her bath towel, getting ready to take a bath with Kasuga. It's, it's editorialized. Again, it's like those earlier shots of Ayukua meant as sort of an offering to the audience, which is kind of weird and creepy given their ages. It's stuff like this in, in the Orange Road anime that always kind of sat a little weird with me, particularly watching this, re-watching this as an adult. But certainly looking back on this decades later, it's a little bit weird that like the 14-year-old girl character is sexualized in this manner, and, the, and even the 16-year-old girl character is sexualized in this manner kind of for the audience. It's like presenting her to the audience as this 
potential sex object for our main character. And it's just a little bit like, that's a little too much. He's like 14 years old. In general, again, too much 15-year-old girl panties, too much sexualizing of young teenage characters. Also in this episode, there's a lot of power use in full view of other characters. Not only does Ayukawa scratch her head, wonder how Kasuga got completely down the street and around the corner in just a few seconds, Shikaru here witnesses all of the objects in her room floating by Kurumi's use of the power. She doesn't know it's Kurumi, but she does see every item in her room floating in the air. There's no explanation for this given. And Yusaku witnesses the power as well. Komatsu and Hata, I'm going to mention both of those instances in a moment. Shikaru does have both parents living under one roof. They're still married, apparently. That's confirmed. So her comment in an earlier episode, I believe it was episode 10, it's kind of weird then about her mom meeting a guy or going out to meet a guy. But apparently her father has his own rooms. I don't know. It's Maybe it's a strange situation. Or maybe his room is an office and not a bedroom. Now, again, Kosuke uses the power right in front of Yusaku. There's no explanation given here. Yusaku definitely saw Kosuke teleport. Kurumi really quickly teleports one of Shikaru's bathing suits over Yusaku's head and torso, and, and this is apparently enough to distract him as, as Shikaru is like chasing him and shouting at him. It redirects his attention away from Kosuke teleporting, but it still seems like a blatant, flagrant use of the power in front of other people that just gets dropped. Also, Yusaku's being kind of a prick in this episode, seeing Shikaru so successful with Kasuga earlier must have really made him jealous. He wants to get a crack at kissing the hypnotized Kasuga as well. But Shikaru's response to Yusaku wearing her bathing suit over his head is a polar opposite of her reaction to Kasuga stealing her panties. She's not flattered at all. She's disgusted, mortified by Yusaku wearing her bathing suit over his head. As he teleports into Abakabu, Kasuga uses the power right next to Komatsu and Hata as well. They, they do seem to notice that he came out of nowhere. So this episode really is a great example of something I've mentioned a few times before, and that is that the Kasugas seem to overestimate the obvious effect of their power. They seem to think everybody will notice, even when they're using it in front of people, People don't seem to notice. They don't seem to put two and two together, at least until next episode. But it makes sense because nobody knows about the ESP. So people are naturally going to seek a more rational, familiar explanation to the phenomena that they witness. And this effect is somewhat protective of Kasuga's secret. Nobody assumes ESP because they don't think ESP exists. So they just try to assume that it's something else. Again, that is until next episode. Kasuga teleports in on his dad, looking at some porn, which I thought was pretty funny. And He's still a man, I guess, but I guessed it. He was going to call it research. He says his friend, his colleague, took the photos. Hell, he probably expensed the magazine. Maybe he even got his company to pay for his Pornhub subscription. All you kids out there, you Zoomers, you Droomers, whatever you're calling yourselves, porno used to come in magazines before the internet was a thing and they were like hard to get your hands on and you always treasured the few you had a few you had two you had three that you'd maybe found or or swiped from somebody you treasured these things these were 
prized possessions before the day of the internet made pornography completely disposable. It's also an interesting, kind of funny subversion. I mean, the parents are supposed to walk in on the kids masturbating, right? I mean, the, the parent is supposed to open the door and Costco is supposed to be going at it or whatever. He's, oh my God, I can't believe I walked in. And, oh my God, dad, knock. You know, that's what you would kind of expect. But instead, because he's not an Esper and his kids are, of course, their relationship is often a flip-flopped or subverted a little bit. His position of authority is subverted a little bit. So it's kind of funny that Casca teleports in on him looking at a porn instead of the other way around. Kind of an interesting view of Takashi, and I think it's even humanizing a little bit. Now, Casca's eyes in this episode are animated with some purpose. They flash as he's registering a command. And Ayukawa calling Casca's bluff, but then being surprised when he does start taking pics just goes to show that she doesn't always know what's going on. And apparently a girl will consent to taking nude pics if you buy her 10 ice creams and a pack of cigarettes. So jot that down. I'm guessing that he returned to normal just after Ayukawa threw the cigarettes at him. They kind of bounce off his forehead. But we hear this voiceover of the last three commands issued to Kasuga and we see his eyes flash one final time. They don't flash again after this. But even more tellingly, his reaction when Ayukua agrees to let him snap the nudes. He reacts. His eyes open wide. He registers a little bit of shock before returning to his dull gaze. Ayukua herself is a little shocked when she calls Kasuga's bluff and realizes he ain't playing. He's taking the picks. That also means that the entire attack on Ayukua occurs by Kasuga's own free will. He's not hypnotized anymore. He's only pretending to be hypnotized as an alibi for his behavior. And he was really being uncharacteristically rough with Ayukua. He can't be this rough with people. It's not in Kasuga's nature because he's a people pleaser. He doesn't like upsetting people. He doesn't like rocking the boat. He's not going to be yanking her apron away and pulling her skirt away to expose her. He was really only ever that rough with her in a previous episode when he hypnotized himself and he was thinking that she was a saleswoman. He didn't recognize her and he was being this kind of like rough kind of wife beater wearing sort of dude. And uh, he was pretty rough with her in that episode too. And she reacted similarly. She sort of allowed it more than maybe she could have. You know, I mean, she could always throat punch the guy. I mean, she's a very skilled martial artist. Now, according to his later narration, he was unconscious or, or only semi-conscious during this assault, even though he retained some memory of this. It's supported by the eye flash that we see as he's beginning his assault on Ayukua. We see that eye flash blinking a little bit. So, so you know, maybe there's a little bit of a, an excuse for his behavior here. They, they, they try to kind of hand wave it away with his final voiceover narration. And we also see that the hypnosis mechanic is a little bit different in this episode than, than previously. He's more robotic. He's got this vacancy, this cognitive vacancy. I kind of like that term. Versus his other hypnoses where he behaved differently, but he still seemed like he was cognitively there. He was present. So perhaps... Kasuga emerged gradually from this hypnosis because it was a little bit of different nature 
Whereas with his other hypnoses, he snapped right out. But to counter that, in his final narration, one of the last lines of the episode, he does admit that maybe he pushed it too far. So maybe that last line is evidence that he was pulling some shit on Ayukawa. And this episode reminds me that there's a common theme in Orange Road of characters behaving uncharacteristically for them under some false pretense. We saw it in the Mushroom of Truth episode. Ayukua attempts to kiss Kasuga despite the snake bite that she received, nullifying the effects of Kurumi's mushroom. It would seem that she wanted to kiss Kasuga, and the mushroom was a convenient excuse. Even if it had worn off, she knew she could just act like it hadn't worn off. In this episode, Kasuga seems to be doing something very, very similar. Here, he can play it off like he's hypnotized. This type of thing is going to happen again with Ayuko and Kasuga in future episodes. There's this idea, though, that due to social norms and or the circumstances that they find themselves in, these characters, primarily it's Ayuko and Kasuga, they can't act on their true feelings or impulses. This has been the norm since relatively early on in the series. But at this point, Ayuko and Kasuga have dealt with this slow burn for a while. There's an abundance of evidence to indicate that these two both really, really like each other. They would want to date each other under normal circumstances. Honestly, the fact that they've kept it in their pants this long is pretty incredible, actually. They are teenagers, after all. So these admittedly zany situations like mood-altering mushrooms and hypnosis actually provide a vehicle for them to act out their true desires. And speaking of acting upon your true desires, you could do me a solid. Head on over to patreon.com slash teamalmy. You can become a patron of Team Almy Studios, the fine podcast studio that brings to you such quality entertainment as you have been listening to for the past 30-ish, 35-ish minutes. We do send out free merch to everybody at every tier. You'll get access to uh, a whole host of bonus content, including Patreon exclusive podcast. Shit happens when you party naked. That's my other podcast. We do video content as well that's difficult to distribute on an RSS via Apple, iTunes, etc. So there's some cool video content and there's more coming. Some live viewings and watch-alongs that we have planned for the future of this podcast. So I appreciate all of my patrons. Thank you very, very much. I'd like to welcome new patron who just joined today, Mikey T. Thank you very much, Mikey. I love you very much. Big kisses. Also, I'd like to encourage you to go check out my other podcast, Creatures of the Night. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a fun kind of kooky, zany conspiracy theory and paranormal podcast, but I promise we don't get political. We do yell about JFK and the assassination and stuff, but beyond that, we don't get political. So go check that out. I appreciate you very, very much. I want to thank you one final time from the bottom of my heart for listening to this episode. Today, I have another cover of Orange Mystery to play for you guys. This is a piano cover of Orange Mystery. Let's check it out.
Damn, that was nice.